0: Good morning, all you brave souls that came through the snow this morning to get here. Let's give uh, a moment to to pause and ask the Lord to bless our time. We thank you, Father, for this uh, opportunity we have of being here. Thank you for the tremendous time of uh, gathering around your table this morning, for your presence with us, and for the commitments that we've each made as we took the bread and drank the cup. We thank you for this uh time to look into your scriptures this morning, pray that they would bless us, challenge us, change us, pray that our heart would be for you, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Do the math, we often talk about the cost of discipleship, but i figured we could do the calculations. I don't know if you read this article or read this story or heard of this story. It was a mixture of shock, disbelief, sadness, judgment, harshness, fascination when I read this. We were on our way to Africa to go to our mercy ships uh, mission and I read this title. U.S. US missionary killed by the world's most isolated tribe. And I thought, what? This is 2018. This was three months ago. (laughs) November 2018. How can this be? And and what was this guy thinking? And and where was he anyway? Where is this tribe? I had no idea that on the islands in the Indian Ocean, uh, there's a, a North Sentinel Island, and on that island there's a people group that do not want any contact with the world outside of their island. None whatsoever. And so they are protected by the laws of nations, and no one's allowed to go on their island. And obviously, they've never heard the message of Jesus Christ. So this young man, John Allen Chow, took it on himself, and I don't know, it seems to be on himself, but he was with a mission organization. He was going to go to that island and reach these people for Christ. And I, I thought, when I read this, I, I didn't know there was such a people that existed any longer, that they were so isolated that I thought, the world is, must be smaller, you know, everybody must know everybody now. And I, I thought, but he, he, didn't, he didn't do the right thing. I mean, he, he went and got killed just by these people. They, they As soon as he landed on their, well, there's more to the story than that, but when he landed for the second or third time on their beaches, they eventually they they shot him with arrows, I think, and uh, that was the end of uh, that contact, anyway. And I thought, well, this is wrong. People shouldn't, you know, break laws to to do this. They shouldn't, you know, go about it this way. There's got to be a, a, a better way to do this. You know, this is this is something that's obviously not well thought out, what planned or. You know, then I start thinking, you know what? How how can I judge this young man so harshly in myself? Like, this isn't so much different than what took place 63 years ago in Ecuador when five other young men tried to reach out to an unreached people's group, the Wari tribe in Ecuador, and they ended up also being killed by the, the people that they were trying to reach. And that story spread around the world and, and many of us are sort of aware of that story and kind of admire greatly the work that those five men tried to do. And then here I come along and say, this guy's not doing it right. Well, he's sort of doing exactly the same thing. These, these people that have done these things, they, they have Whether right or wrong ways of doing things have settled something in their heart that they are going to give of themselves for the Lord. That was their choice, their decision to do that. And it's happened, you know, from the beginning of the church, really. Stephen wanted to tell people about Jesus. And he wanted to tell people who didn't want to hear about Jesus. And he told them anyway and they killed him for it. So that's been going on from that time forward and even to today. And we heard about these people in Burma who lost their lives for their faith in Christ. So this idea of life lost because of our desire to follow Jesus is not a new message. Jim Elliott was one of the five men who was killed in Ecuador. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That was really prophetic of him, wasn't it, to say that before he died in that, in the, on that beach on the river banks of Ecuador. So these are extreme examples of, of the cost, if we want to talk about that. We often talk about that word cost, of people who were committed to following Jesus. Today's passage, we want to look at what Jesus taught about making this decision to become his disciples. It includes two short parables, and therefore it's on our parable uh, ser- series of talks that we're giving. And these two ter- parables uh, teach the importance of carefully making and, uh, the, this serious choice to become the disciple of Jesus. In other words, it tells us to do the math. So it's an important thing to weigh our choices and what decisions are we going to make. So the setting here, uh, Luke gives us, uh, is it a day in Jesus' life. They're on the road, which was often the case for Jesus, and it's often traveling. And with him, Luke says, was a, a large crowd of people, and that too became fairly familiar as the people were attracted to Jesus and they wanted to follow him. They wanted to see what he was up to. They wanted to hear what he was saying. They wanted to be healed. They wanted uh, the excitement of being around him. They, they maybe wanted to watch him and, and see him confront the Pharisees, whatever. They had lots of different motives, but they were all walking along the road with Jesus. I don't know how large the crowd was. Luke just says large crowd. Uh, I I don't know what large crowds were in those days, but probably more than what's on my picture here. (laughs) But this was the best I could find of the picture of Jesus turning and addressing the crowds. Now, he wanted to tell these people that were with him, that were following him along, that becoming a disciple is a serious decision. And that he wanted to communicate to them that it requires a total commitment, a new set of priorities. Uh, It would be demanding. It would mean an intense relationship. Uh, It will impact all aspects of their life and will require careful analysis before making that decision. And it will mean the start of a new life. Bottom line, it's not going to be a life of ease or a walk in the park as we would might easily colloquial say. So, what does Jesus say? Luke 14:25 and 26. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So we are immediately struck by, at least I am when I read that, one word in the middle of that that paragraph. Put it in red there. Hate. Surely this isn't the Jesus that fed the 5,000 people who were hungry. Surely it's not the Jesus that wept over the crowds because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. It can't be that Jesus. The one that taught us that we should love one another. What is he talking about here hating not only hating our enemies but hating our closest relationships our closest family members and even ourselves now that's totally a wrong against what we hear today is that you have to you know accept yourself and be yourself but Jesus says no we have to hate ourselves what in the world can he mean and who is this Jesus who suddenly turned around i thought i thought we were following a, a, a great teacher but now i hear this from him Well, there's a couple of thoughts as to why that word hate is there. One of the ones that's commonly uh, considered is that it's uh, a figure of speech called a hyperbole. And hyperboles are figures of speech that use exaggeration to make a point or to show the emphasis of what we're trying to say. You know, I told you a million times not to do that. Well, that's an uh, an example of hyperbole. Or, I'm dying of shame. Well, you're not, you're still there, but here you are, you're ashamed, yes, okay. But I've got it. We're exaggerating to make the point of how things are perceived. And Jesus used that device frequently, and actually it's used a lot in scriptures, and sometimes if we don't recognize it, we kind of get a little bit confused. Maybe that's what was going on in front of this audience right now. Jesus said something like, you know, cut off your hand if it offends you, like, how many have done that? You know, like nobody. He was being uh, an exaggerated uh, example. And you pull out the log out of your own eyes. Well, how many of you have seen a log in your eyes? I mean, it's uh, it's above and beyond to get to the point. It certainly catches the attention. And I think Jesus was using it as an attention grab here for these people who are walking along. It makes people stop and think and that's a, a certainly a, a, i think a, a reasonable explanation why that uh, that Jesus uses that word hate there and just relatively we are to be more devoted to Jesus than to any other relationship that we have on earth including our our own lives so relative to their love for Jesus it seems like the disciples would be hating their family and and life so that's An example of hyperbole, uh, and and that's reasonable, I think, and it's emphasized by that reference to the cross, which follows, how we were to take up our cross and follow Him, or the disciples were to take up their cross and follow Him. Now the cross, yeah, we usually see the picture of carrying the full, you know, full cross like that one over there, but usually they just carried that cross piece, which was. Attached to the, to the upright pole when they got there, so when the people were uh, being put to death. But it was an instrument of torture and death that the Romans were particularly fond of using on their enemies. And when you carried that cross, you were going to your death, but you were really being pictured as totally under the authority of the emperor. You had submitted completely to to that authority, there was no going back. And, and Jesus uses that illustration not infrequently in the Gospels that we are to carry our cross, we are to carry the own, our own instrument of our own, symbol of our a submission unto His authority. It was. It was also, uh, if you were writing a novel, you would say that it's um, foreshadowing what was coming, right? And it certainly did that too as Jesus carried his cross, and gave his life for us. But it shows that disciples were to give their life, everything to him. Their priority was to be totally devoted to him. I have one other uh, possible explanation for the use of the word hate. Maybe they're both there, and I think that probably they are. But when I was studying this, I found that the word hate in Greek language carries a broader meaning than than our English word hate. Our English word hate has but one meaning really to detest, to uh intensely dislike. That it sort of covers that word hate. Our word for love, we have a lot of colored different meanings in the word love, right, in English. It can mean, you know, I love snow. No, no. I, I love uh I love coffee, you know, I love sports, yeah. I love the Toronto Maple Leafs. No, 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 no. But it also can mean, you know, I love our spouse, our children. I love God. It's, you know, it's a broad spectrum word. Our word hate isn't the same. It only means really an intense dislike. But the Greek word for the one that's often translated hate is a bit more broad than, than our English word hate. And it's especially interesting for... A society where a culture where there was a, a shame and honor system going on, which we we're not so much into that sort of in our culture, but the Middle Eastern cultures were a, a shame honor cons, uh, uh, culture, and and bringing shame to someone was terrible thing, bringing honor was the greatest thing you could do, um, and this word that we use hate is is in that sense means to to disregard almost to give less preferential treatment to, I wouldn't say the word dishonor maybe, but in that sort of idea. So if you were to disregard your parents or your spouse or your children or even yourself, you would be saying that you were not bringing honor to yourself. You were putting yourself at a lower level of honor. And that makes a lot of sense, I think, in what Jesus was saying, is that the, the priority is Jesus. These other people, they're important people but we don't bring them the same degree of honor that we bring to the Lord. So we we disregard some of our own needs, our own security, for example. We disregard ourselves in that we don't seek the spotlight. We want to set the spotlight on Jesus. And so it's a relative, again, disregard for others compared to our honoring the Lord. So both of those ideas help me to understand what Jesus was Saying there, he wasn't really going against all his other teaching about the I need to love one another, care for one another, and and even honor one another. But he is the priority. He is the preeminent one. So, what is the most important thing in your life? If you're going to be a disciple, Jesus says it's going to be me. So. The next thing we want to think about becoming a disciple involves a very defined relationship, an intense personal relationship with the teacher, the rabbi. Now, when people talked about being disciples in Jesus' time, they probably had a bit of a different picture than what you and I have been thinking about all along as we've been talking about disciples this morning. And I owe a bit of this to the series uh, that the world may know by Vanderlam, who who kind of twigged us, for those of you who watched that, into this idea that the disciple in the first century, Jesus' time, was a a bit of a different entity than what we think of. Uh, The Hebrew word was talmudim or something, something like that, and I'm not even going to try the Greek word. But the disciples then... As we know, we're, we're learners and the believers in their teacher. And we know about the 12, and we know that Jesus told them to go make more disciples, and that people who followed him were called disciples. But what was a disciple of the first century? So the first century disciple had a rabbi. Now, we go to school, we go to universities, but none of our Schools? Do we ever focus on just one teacher and grasp on teacher and say that's my teacher for this whole period of time in my life? But that was the rabbinical way of teaching. Some people were were selected or were identified as being the teachers, and they were the respected teachers of scripture in, in this time. And they were sought out by those who wanted to pursue a higher education. So all the young people learned the scriptures when they were growing up as children. But instead of going for a trade, some of them would desire to, to learn more, to understand greater the scriptures, and they would join themselves or be accepted by a, a rabbi as their disciple. And then that would mean that that person would follow closely that rabbi's teaching and would agree with it and would learn from it and would learn to, to share it with others. And it wasn't just for a... A term, uh, 13 weeks in your semester, it was months, years of of close uh, contact with that rabbi. And it wasn't just go to the lectures at at nine o'clock and come home at at eleven o'clock and spend the rest of the day studying. It was being with the rabbi for the whole day, even for the evening. They may even have uh, uh, bunked together in, uh, in places at times, but but they meant meals together, traveling together, very intense, close observation of one another and each other as to the deportment and character. So the the rabbi would learn what his his disciple was like, and the disciple would learn what the rabbi was like. And there was significant. Teaching, discussion periods, frequent, intense, and intimate discussions, both asking questions and answering questions. And so that went on and on, and that's a little bit of a different model than what we think of when we think of disciple. It also meant a a submission to that, to that rabbi. The disciple agreed to submit to that teach, that teacher's teachings, and when that rabbi's interpretation was known, the disciple, it was his responsibility to to follow that teaching and it was expected to to toe the line one thing i found interesting about uh, first century disciples is that they were in a group usually like so you have a rabbi with a group of disciples and that fits with jesus practice we saw that that group would among themselves spend lots of time discussing what the rabbi was teaching and they would, you know, back and forth. They would wrestle with the teaching. Can he mean this? Can he mean that? Or no, I think he should mean this, and I think. It, and it was uh, a lot of interaction between disciples. The rabbi might just listen and see what they were talking about and see how far off track they were. At times, he, he might interject and give them some advice as to, you know, check this out and look here. Or at other times, he might say, "Okay, enough of that discussion. Here's the." Here's the answer. So, it, but there was a, a lot of that wrestling it's a, a, with, with what was being said and understood. And, and I think uh, these people just really liked that too. <laughs> Somehow they really liked getting into that. Quite a wrestling match. And a final thing I want to just add was that the disciples often wanted to become like their rabbi. They wanted to emulate them in, in their knowledge, in their character, and as a teacher, and then eventually probably many would like to become rabbis themselves and have their own group of disciples to follow. So they wanted to be like, well, like the uh, the rabbi. So the people in the crowd, when when Jesus turned and said, "You know, if you want to follow me, you must hate your relatives and yourself and pick up your cross and follow." They want to be my disciple. This is kind of what they would have hear, heard. This kind of disciple. Someone who wants to come in a close, intimate, long-term, intense relationship and would like to become like him. So that was the, uh, the what they would have heard as a first century, uh, uh, listener. And it, and th- it was obviously then a, a very serious decision and it would require careful Analysis of whether I want to do this or not. I want to weigh the options. I would need to do the math if I was going to be a first-century disciple. And then he tells two uh, stories, two parables, which I think helped people to grasp the importance of that. The first one. Um, that helps us understand whether becoming a disciple requires really careful analysis is the story of the tower builder. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build, and wasn't able to finish it. So this first story may have happened as they've been walking by a vineyard because uh, vineyards had watchtowers often. So if you had a vineyard, you'd put up a tower in the middle so you could keep an eye on your property and your vineyard. and, And Jesus actually uses that in one of the other parables we'll get to. If you were going to undertake a building project, for example, if you were going to do a major renovation in your house, you would call Jim. Jim's not here today, so I can pick on Jim. But you'd call Jim, and he would uh, come over, and he, you would talk to him about what you want, and he would discuss that, and he would say, "Yeah, we could do that. We could do this. You could do whatever." <laughs> Jim always says that. Well, do whatever. And and uh, and he would go to home, and he would with his sharp pencil, he would. Calculate the cost out, and, and then he would send you his estimate, and you would say, "Ooh," <laughs> or, or you say, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty reasonable." Jim's actually doing a lot here, but whatever, you would say. Now I go over to my bank accounts and I say, "Hmm, let's see, does that match with what Jim has on his on his estimate?" And you would know whether you had the resources to do this renovation that you wanted to do. And you would do that. I mean, who doesn't do that? And that's what Jesus is saying. Who doesn't do that when they're going to build a project? Well, he, he comes up with this story about a tower builder who didn't, who didn't do that. He, he's just started out working. I want to build a tower. Well, I got the foundations, but now I can't pay any more workers to come and help me. So, and I don't have any money to buy bricks and mortar. And, and what do I do now? And there he, he walks away and leaves his tower. And that's the, silly thing to do, obviously. He didn't calculate the cost. He didn't do the math. And Jesus says, you wouldn't do that. Of course you wouldn't do that. It makes no sense to do that. And and why would you make any important decision without first doing the math? The next uh, story he told, tells about uh, is about a king. So we went from, you know, farmer maybe to highest in the land, to the person who has ultimate political and um, military and wealth, um, all this sort of thing. So the king. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the others is still a long way off, and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those who did not, who do not give up everything you have, those of you who do not give up everything you have, cannot be my disciples. So here they are walking along the road. Maybe they pass some Roman soldiers. Jesus says, "Yeah, it's like a king who's sending his soldiers off to war, thinking about doing that." I don't know. Kings seem to think about things like that a lot. Or I don't know why. but So, they, they had their wealth and security. They had money, fame, and authority, and they seemed to want to extend that at times to other realms and get more. But the king says with his pencil down, okay, I want that land, but oh, that king's got 20,000 soldiers. I've only got 10,000 soldiers. Maybe Maybe it would be better to have a treaty with that king rather than a war with that king, you know? uh, we'll, we'll go for free trade instead, you know, like But that's a wise king, right? One that's sat down, and thought about this feels that he's not going to have the resources he needs to do that, so he's going to take a different course of action. And then Jesus is commending that decision. that's a, that's a smart move. The wise king does the math. He recognizes his lack of resources, attempts to arrange a peace treaty. He spares the lives of all those soldiers that were going to be killed in a battle. And he might even get to keep his kingdom. And that was all to his benefit. Interesting, both of these stories that Jesus taught features people with insufficient resources. And it's kind of interesting that You know, disciples aren't necessarily those with all the resources. They often and always actually don't have sufficient resources. And the landowner, the king, neither had what took to do it on their own. And perhaps Jesus is subtly reminding people that they don't have what it takes to do it on their own. But Jesus is asking everyone to consider this cost of becoming a disciple. The, the cost is the usual word we, we use, but I don't know. Maybe it's not always the best word. It sort of implies maybe we could actually buy discipleship. Maybe if we put enough intuition, we could be a disciple. Maybe a better word would be the expectations of a disciple. Just to think about. But it's really the result of turning over one's life, all that they have, to the, to the, uh, to the one that's going to lead. Becoming a disciple is to start a new life. So we've t- Jesus I am skipping out of the passage a little bit. Told told you guys in the homiletics not to do this. So uh, well I, I, in this particular passage we see all the warnings about, you know, what it's gonna what the expectations are on disciples. We don't get to see what the positives. So I had to sort of sneak out of the passage a little bit. Jesus had been urging his disciples to do the math. But, so they had all these, you know, not this, not this, not this, you know, take cost, that, that, But there's nothing on the other side of the balance sheet, right? So how do you do the cost analysis if there's all <laughs> negatives? Why would you ever do this? But there is a, there is a positive side in, in a risk balance, uh, risk-benefit analysis. You might see that, uh, and what is that benefit? So what is the plus side? Well, Jesus spoke about this topic quite often. If you scan through the Gospels, you'll find this idea of taking up your cross repeated multiple times. You'll find another phrase that is often uh, associated with that. It's not in this passage, but earlier in Luke, Uh, 9.23, just a few chapters back, Jesus was already saying something like this. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? This idea of Wanting to save your life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. I think is I haven't found any more frequent sayings of Jesus than this one. This is the one that's recorded most often in the Gospels. This is what the Gospel writers chose to put down more often than anything else that Jesus said. They put it down six times in the Gospels. And if you can find something else that Jesus said and is recorded more often, tell me. But in my studies, that, that it's amazing, really, that it occurs in all four Gospels, a t- couple of times in some of the Gospels, and it has a, a great significance for us. So the negative side, you're going to give up your life. But the positive side, you're going to gain life. You're going to save life. You're going to start a new life, and it'll be a life that has an intense meaning, an intense purpose, an intense uh, uh, promise to it. Just a, another time when, when this is repeated, I just wanted to. I find this time in John to be quite helpful. Listen carefully unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, Reckless in your love, you'll have it forever. Real and eternal life. So a seed of wheat has a kind of life in it, but it's not gonna go anywhere. It's just gonna never amount to anything. If, unless it's willing to be given away and you put it in the ground and put the water on and it sprouts new life and then it becomes fruitful and it's an exciting life and it's a bountiful life and that's what Jesus is saying. The, the, the cost is great, but the benefits are extraordinary. So, becoming a disciple is open to everyone, even today. And I put these two pictures up. One's the first century sandal and the other one's the more modern walking attire. Followers of Jesus can be on any, any time period. Well, what does a modern-day disciple look like? How would we translate this idea of disciple from first century into 21st century? What do we need to think about, and how do we make that connection? We understand that Jesus was telling them it's an important decision whether it's the first century or the 21st century. But what does a disciple today uh, look like? And does that offer still stand even? yeah, it does stand. It's it offered to us to be disciples of Jesus. So a disciple in the 21st century, like a disciple in the 1st century, needs to have intimate daily time with the rabbi. And we as disciples of Jesus will want to spend as much time as possible with, his, with him. He promised that he would always be with us, even though he's not currently walking in his sandals, the the roads of Israel. But he's more than that. He's with all of us all over the world at all times. What a tremendous opportunity. And we can access his presence and be with him wherever we are, whenever we are. He sent his Holy Spirit to be in us. He wants to be part of every aspect of our lives, at home, at work, when we're eating our meals, when we're sleeping, when we're with other people, when we're alone, when we're worshipping together, Jesus wants to be there. He would ask, like his first century um, disciples, that we would submit to the rabbi, that we would want to follow him in obedience, that we would want to do what he taught and as he said, just like the first century uh, disciples would be submitting to their rabbi. As we know, disciples are learner. That hasn't changed. The learners in the first century. We still want to learn the rabbis' teaching. We need to study his teachings. We need to understand them. I was particularly attracted to this idea of the group discussions that the disciples had in the first century. That's a, a remarkable thing, and something I think we could do more as, as 21st disciples. It's just to have more of that time when we wrestle with the, with the rabbis' teachings. What does he say? What, what does it mean? I think it means this, Noah. I think he means this. What what do you think it means? And we get together in our Bible studies, our prayer groups, our social times. We get together in our fellowship times around the the table and even in the morning. All of these times are tremendous opportunities to to wrestle with the ideas and teachings of the rabbi. And it's so important that 21st 21st century disciples don't just go it alone that we are uh, wrestling together. Perhaps the most important thing is that we want to emulate our rabbi. We want to be like him. We want to change our character into his character. That we want to focus on what it is that Jesus was like. We should be like that too. In humility, forgiveness, thankfulness, all those fruits of the Spirit, we want to love like Jesus loved. So intimate daily time with the rabbi. Submission to the rabbi, being together with others, and becoming more like him in our appearance. Just really want to remind everyone that the decision to become a disciple is a momentous and life-changing one. It requires serious consideration. It requires that sharp pencil to do the math. But it's a particularly tremendous, important decision with a lot of, of positives to it, too. We often talk about the cost, but perhaps a better term, as I mentioned, would be the expectations of the discipleship. There's expectations of what we might have to put in, but there's an expectation as to what is coming down the road. It certainly is a path. It's not that you make this decision and you're there. How many perfect disciples do you know? I haven't found any yet, and uh, we're on that path together, learning as we follow the Lord Jesus. Thank you, our Father, for the uh, one who we have that we can follow, the the great rabbi, the teacher, the Lord that we want to crown, Lord of all. We pray that we might be followers of him, that we might commit ourselves to that life of being with him, of being like him, of being with others who are following him. And we pray that our commitment to you might bring honor and glory and bring uh, great uh, joy to the world around us, and and life and health and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.